This episode brought to you by Audible, and today you can receive a free audiobook and 30-day free trial by visiting audibletrial.com slash sports. Listen to your audiobook anywhere, anytime. Exploring the impact of sports. Welcome, Welcome to Rich Take on Sports, the sports podcast with life. Having conversations and hearing personal stories from those who have been impacted, built, and inspired by the role of sports in their lives. Here's your host, Richmond Weaver. This is episode 74. I am your host, Richmond Weaver, and glad you're listening through whatever platform that might be. Thanks for being an investor by investing your time to listen. We all know that on any given team, each person plays a certain role, and regardless of your role, the one thing that is paramount is that everyone is prepared. Our guest this episode, Dan Orlovsky, knows all about what it takes to be prepared regardless of his role. Dan spent 12 years in the NFL as quarterback after being drafted in the fifth round by the Detroit Lions in 2005 and would sign with five different teams over his career. After winning a state championship his senior season at Shelton High School in Shelton, Connecticut, he played for the University of Connecticut and would become the face of the Huskies football team, setting multiple school passing records as he helped head coach Randy Etzel lead UConn from Division I-AA to Division I and a member of the Big East Conference. Dan's insight and expertise as an NFL quarterback would continue to be highlighted after his retirement from the NFL in 2017 as he's worked with the NFL Network on the Good Morning Football Show and the American Flag Football League providing broadcasting insight. Dan also recently signed a new deal with ESPN, joining the network's college football broadcasting team and will also be used as an NFL analyst. Here's episode 74 with Dan Orlovsky. Dan, thank you so much for your time, especially taking time away from vacation. And I just got to know, on vacation, how many Choco Tacos are you going to eat this week? (laughs) You know, um, my bark is bigger than bite when it comes to that stuff probably just one to be honest with you i i try to eat relatively okay um choco tacos aren't going to fit into the the whole concept of that so i won't i won't intake a ton (laughs) that's right and so what beach are you at these days uh we go down to sea isle city new jersey my wife is from philadelphia so a lot of philly people go down to sea isle um really cool beach it's a it's a great family area so Speaking of family, I mean, you're, you've got your hands full. Is there any more kids in the future for you guys? No, 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 no. We, uh, <laughs> we, thoroughly, we thoroughly enjoy the family that we have. It is a busy enough home um, and full enough home the way we have it. So we're very, very fortunate and blessed with the way it's kind of fallen into our laps this way. And you recently retired from the NFL, and you had a great run in the NFL, 12 years. So what was the decision, and why retire now? Well, I'd always, I was a guy that when I got into the NFL, the grind of it was a big deal to me. I loved the grind of it in every aspect of the grind, whether it was the preparation grind, the in-season grind the off-season grind, staying in shape, all that stuff. I fell in love with every part of it and told myself, 
once that love of it went away, like truly went away, not like, oh man, this is difficult. It was always going to be difficult, but it truly went away that that was going to begin the process uh, for me of saying, okay, this is, uh, this is not it for me anymore. And it, that started a couple of years ago. And as it got a bigger deal of, you know, as that love faded more and more and more, that it became more of a real question for me. And then, you know, part of it was I was done moving around a ton as a family. That's why I won't go into coaching is because you move so, so much more than likely. Uh, my kids were five and lived in five different houses, had been to five different schools. Um, I know there's pros to that as well, but just not something that I necessarily wanted. I'm not the type of person that's going to stay someplace for 20 years either. And then, um, you know, the reality is I think a lot of guys struggle to admit this at some point or say it out loud, but the NFL retired me in a lot of ways too. You know, uh, the NFL told me you're not good enough anymore. And, you know, some people can think of accepting that as a bad thing, as a weakness. I accepted it. I had no regrets. I had no reservations to go, did I really try as hard as I can? Was I still working as hard as I could? So once all those variables came into play, it was uh, it was obvious to me that, okay, I'm, I'm ready to move on. When you look back now, throughout that whole playing career in the NFL and in college, what about stepping all the way back to your childhood and remembering those early memories of being involved in sports and obviously football? So what are some of your earliest memories of gravitating towards sports? Yeah, I mean, I was a jock from the beginning. I was a football or sport junkie kid from the beginning, whether it was growing up in Connecticut and in living 30 minutes from ESPN and sports center and being glued to the television for sports center mornings or at night times to uh, just the opportunity to go and play outside and throw a ball around throwing was very, uh, very natural to me at an early age. So that was something I was playing baseball from the age of like four. And um, I just loved sports running around. I was the kid that um, was sweating all day long playing sports with my friends, what, whatever kind of sport it was, basketball, baseball, football. And then the sports aspect as I got older into eight, nine, ten years old just became very much um, something that was ingrained in my DNA. I loved the competition of it. I loved the difficulty of it. I loved the center of attention aspect of it. I loved trying to go be better than everybody. So um, that was my mindset, at least as a kid. And um, and that's where my friends came from as well. You know, a lot of my friends, I was, like I said, I was a sport kid. And when did you recognize or when did coaches recognize that you have a gift for playing quarterback? To be honest with you, I was probably as a kid a better baseball player. Um, as a Little League baseball player, I was I was better than, say, a Pop Warner kid. But I think it was pretty obvious early on to coaches and my father that I remember as a kid, my father used to always say to me, you'll be playing on Sundays one day. And I had no concept of what that like meant. I was like, I don't even like my games are on Saturdays. Um, <laughs> you know, I had no I had no concept of that. But, um, you know, I grew up in a town uh, named Shelton, Connecticut, which is just north of Fairfield County, Connecticut. And sports to that town are a big deal, especially football. And I remember as a kid, people started to talk, you know, cause we had a pretty good team, you know, during our pop, pop Warner years and people started to talk, 
you know, about me and this, you know, all saying all positive things, whatnot. I wasn't aware of it really at that time, what it meant, but I remember people talking about it. So I would imagine nine, 10 years old is when, you know, people started to say this, he throws the ball differently than other people type thing. And what about the recruiting process? What did that look like for you? Oh man, recruiting is crazy. You know, I was, um, never planning on being a part of it. You know, it was always like, Oh yeah, I I was ignorant and naive in some ways. And then, um, you know, I started getting recruited back into my freshman, early part of my sophomore year. It was mainly from some smaller schools in Yukon, which is where I ended up going. And then after my sophomore season, um, my father put together a highlight tape and sent it off to a bunch of schools. And within, you know, 36 hours of that tape getting sent off type thing, um, school started calling, all the bigger schools started calling a bunch of Big Ten schools and Tennessee and some SEC, some smaller SEC schools and um, a bunch of ACC schools started calling. And that's when the recruiting process really started for me. And okay, clearinghouse and SATs and grades and how that all stuff became part of the equation. And then um, it just grew from there. But the, the, the one thing or one team that was a constant for me recruiting and very upfront was Coach Etzel at UConn took a bunch of different visits. You know, I, I wanted to go play big time college football. So I committed to Michigan state and um, long story short, they had a young true freshman that started to play really, really, really well for a couple of weeks. I wanted to play early at college. So I decided, okay, I want to, I don't want to go there. Took a visit to the university of Purdue um, or Purdue university and Kyle Orton, who is a highly thought of, thought of quarterback coming out of high school same year as me committed while I was on my visit so I said well I'm not going to go there <laughs> I took a visit to University of Virginia Matt Schaub who's now in his 15th year in the NFL and good buddy of mine was actually my host and the head coach George Welsh kept calling me Matt not Dan so I was like well I can't be really liked here if you can't even <laughs> yeah that's a problem <laughs> yeah so um you know, Coach Edsel at UConn just stayed on me, kept selling me this vision, this dream, this what had so many had deemed unattainable goal, and I kind of fell in love with that. And uh, that's how my recruiting process kind of ended me at UConn. And so what was that dream, that unattainable goal that Coach Edsel was pitching you on? Yeah, the, the, the chance to go do something that everybody thought was crazy, and that was going to take – that was meant taking UConn which is a which was a basketball program and in some arguments a women's basketball school i mean the men have had tremendous success but basketball nonetheless and turn it into a football school in some ways and so taking it from 1AA back in the day to 1A into uh, from a yankee conference where you were playing UMass and Yale and Lehigh and and Rhode Island and then going into the Big East where you were going to play Miami and Virginia Tech and Syracuse and Pittsburgh and West Virginia. And so um, he had sold me on that goal of, listen, no one thinks we can do this. I think we can. I think we can when if you're here with us um, and just trying to go do that, that was really enticing to me that everyone thought it was crazy that we could go be good at football, be good in that conference and make a bowl game. So it was kind of one of those things where it was just uh, the 
the bait was too enticing for me not to take it. How hard was that to be able to do that? What were the challenges that throughout your career there? Because I know that it's not an easy task. Yeah, that's really something that's hard to quantify in the words for people because sometimes you can't even believe the things that we went through. I mean, when I went to UConn right away, I mean, we were buying our own shoes. I can't, I can't even tell you who was making our uniforms. <laughs> we, I probably had three or four games my freshman year where we lost by 60 plus points. And we were, I mean, I remember we lost to Temple when Temple was not good by 60 something. We lost to Middle Tennessee by 60. We were just getting absolutely drubbed by everybody. Um, and, you know, very much so a laughing stock my freshman year. We weren't very, we went two and nine. Um, and just not really good. And it was obvious, but there was still this, this belief, um, this kind of, there's no way that we're not going to make this happen mindset, you know, in a, obviously in a good way, but it could be in a bad way. You're so hard headed that you're going to make it happen no matter what. And we, it took uh, incredible amounts of work and sacrifice. I mean, we would work, 365. There was no off season for us after our freshman year. We worked tirelessly um, to become better in all aspects of being an athlete and football and the way we were going to go about the, the changing that culture. And so we had facilities challenges. I mean, my, my meeting rooms, if you look at the, the facilities that are even on campus right now for their football program, but really part of the country, I mean, they're not even in the same category my my our meeting rooms were portable trailers if you go to a, like a no a new development real estate development for a neighborhood and they have these just portable trailers that are like the sales office that are set up briefly that's what ours were no heating no air conditioning so <laughs> uh, yeah we didn't have an indoor facility so you could imagine in connecticut when you're practicing or working out in december january and february you're doing it in the weather you're doing it in 20 degrees and snow and whatnot. I remember times where we would have to practice and there would be snow on the ground on a turf field that was shared by multiple sports. And I'm not, I'm not kidding. We would shovel the field as a football team before practice. So um, yeah, just all those things that came into play that were on top of having to find guys that were going to be good enough to win games with. So what was the turning point then that, you felt that, all right, we're, we're believing in this and we're pushing through this because you guys start having success. Yeah. I mean, I think we always kept believing in it. We always, you know, being young, we were ignorant and enough to believe in it, but I do believe the turning point was after our freshman year, me and another guy who was in my freshman class went into our head coach's office and we just said like, listen, this is not okay. We're not going like, this is not, we didn't come here for this. And in sports, in a lot of areas, I would imagine, you know, there is that pecking order or that, you know, seniority rules type thing. And I just remember our head coach going, listen, if that's what you guys want, fine, but you got to go do it your way. And he's like, I don't care if you guys are freshmen right now. And he's like, there is no rank here. There is no, you have to do what the seniors want you to do or this and that. He was like, and you also need to be aware when you step out, what the consequences are with that stuff. And he was basically telling us, go take control of the team. 
if that's what you guys want, don't, don't think you have to be a senior to be a leader on this football team. And so I think that was a turning point for him and I to sit in our coach's office and for him to give us kind of that, not only clearance, but encouragement to go say, okay, if, if this is what you guys want, go. And I think in that was one of those transformative moments where we said, all right, let's, let's go do this. And we started to take complete control and ownership, not only of our team, but of our program. And we set the tempo every single day for how we were going to go about getting better, whether it was in our meeting rooms, whether it was on the practice field, whether it was in our weight room, whether it was on how we were going to run and condition and, and all the things, every aspect of our life. And, um, you know, it wasn't something that happened overnight. It was in that moment that it started, but it was over the really the next year, I would say that you saw, you saw the, the, the fruit being sown type thing. And we started my sophomore year two and six struggling yet still that ignorant mindset. And then we rolled <laughs> off our next four games. We started pounding teams. We started lighting the scoreboard on fire. And then our last game of the year of my sophomore year, we went to Iowa state. They were really good. They had Seneca Wallace there. They were at one point, number four in the country, a very good team. And we, just thumped them. And I think that was the game that said, okay, the next two years, let's go. How did that process that you went through help you in the NFL then? Certainly handling failure, handling disappointment, handling expectations, um, but also the the verification that if you know that it's the cliche type of mind or thought process of if you truly believe in something and work towards it man it's it's hard for it not to happen and so um i think that helped me you know i was i was one of those ignorant hard-headed guys that when i got into the nfl i just thought listen if i work as hard as i can i'll play a long time and um and that was the case but i think just handling a locker room of people during really difficult times. You know, I had some really, I guess if you want to call them down moments of my NFL career, challenging moments of my NFL career. I think I was prepped for that as a leader. You know, I had a coach once tell me during my time at UConn, playing quarterback is like being the president. You're never not the president and you're never not the quarterback. It's 24-7, 365. And I think that, you know, when you have to be that guy and you're, you're, you're a really bad football team, yet you still have to be that guy, uh, I think certainly afforded me um, the opportunity to handle those situations in the NFL and really life much better. And what were some of those down moments in the NFL? You did have a 12-year career. Well, just struggles. I mean, the NFL is is a very difficult lifestyle and business to be a part of. You know, my first year, Thanksgiving week, our head coach gets fired. Certainly not what you want as a young guy in the NFL. Um, my second year in the NFL, we're not, we win three games. My third year, we're a little bit better. My fourth year, we're terrible and we go 0 and 16. Um, you know, so you can imagine those first 48 months of my NFL career, you know, I go through three, three head coaches. Um, I, I have a two-win season, a three-win season, and a zero-win season that I'm a part of. Um, so just 
you you get very quickly you have to answer a lot of questions to yourself when you're putting your head down on the pillow at nighttime and um working and being committed to your work is easy when you're getting 11 12 13 wins a season but when you're working and only getting two or three wins a season doubt becomes a very real thing that creeps into your mind and questions of why and is this worth it am i any good what's going on? Why am I a part of this? Um, you know, so I think, um, those are a lot of the down, the downfalls of, or the, the, the down moments. And, um, it just kind of, in a way, as a kid, you grew up playing sports and you love the sport of it and the kid aspect of it. Cause it's a game and the competition aspect of it. And then when you go through that stuff, you can almost become numb to it because the NFL is very much so a business. It's in a way of life to go make a, a living and you can become numbed to that and go, Oh, you know, the competition, it is what it is. Or the, the childhood love of the game. Well, that's gone because I'm getting paid to do this now. So you, those variables become very real and you've got to figure out ways to navigate your way through it. And what about any mentors that helped you through some of those times and just also mentors through your career? Yeah, I was incredibly fortunate to have some uh, just phenomenal people around me during my time. Um, during those down years of Detroit was crazy because uh, I, be, I had some incredible relationships that I still have nowadays. Our team chaplain, a guy named Dave Wilson, had profound impact on my life um, and uh, growing my faith. Mike Furry, a guy who played receiver for us, was a guy that I watched live out a lot of the things that he said and was an incredible mentor and role model to me. John Kitna, who was a quarterback for us and I obviously shared a quarterback room with, incredible impact on me as a person. Josh McCown, a guy who's still playing um, another guy that I was around fortunate to be around and just watching these guys how they were as obviously professionals and went about their work but even more so how they were as teammates how they were as people how they how they were as husbands and dads um you know and uh, that those couple years really set an incredible foundation a remarkable foundation for me moving forward in my NFL career but also just in life what about a moment or a point in your career where you become the mentor for mentees? Do you remember that? Sure, sure. I think, you know, I always, as as mindset, okay, I'm a quarterback, you always, at least I wanted to have impact on my teammates. But I think it became even more of a, a reality was when I, after 2011, I played some for the Colts. I played pretty well. And... I thought going into that free agency period, that was going to be the moment where the NFL was going to give me my opportunity to be a starter. And as free agency went, the NFL told me very clearly, no one viewed me as a starter. People viewed me as a backup. And it was in that moment that I had to transition my mind because everything up until that moment I had done and worked for and focused on, okay, starter, 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 starter. But in that free agency period, I was told by the NFL, you're not a starter. And so, okay, where's my mindset transition? And it was to a backup and okay, then what my role, what's my role as a backup? What are the key things as a backup? And everyone talks about, well, you got to be ready to play. And that's all fine and dandy, no doubt, but that's, that's like the duh moment. Yeah. (laughs) Of course you have to be able to do your job, but the truth of it is, is 
there's 16 games a year and 32 teams all want their backup quarterback to play zero snaps. So if you're going to more than likely not play that much, then you better find ways to impact your football team and prove that you are worthy of one of those 53 roster spots in ways other than performance, because your performance doesn't really matter because what happens if it never comes? What happens if the opportunity to have performance never comes? You better figure out ways to prove value. And so that in though in that moment, I figured out, okay, I've got to prove value to the guy that I share a room with the starting quarterback. How can I help mentor him in every aspect of this position? And then, all right, where there's other positions other than the quarterback. So receivers, how do I help them? Are some of our, our young defensive backs, how do I help them when they're looking at quarterbacks and offenses? And so how do I help the coaching staff? What do I do during practice? Um, I think those in that moment, I had to make a very uh, not fun transition, but very real one if I wanted to play longer than five years. And from the casual fan perspective, the life of a backup quarterback looks like it's a breeze, looks easy. You hold a clipboard and every once in a while you might get in. But what is it really like as life as a backup quarterback? Yeah, I mean, I'll shoot you straight. It's it's remarkable in a lot of different ways. It is. It's awesome. I mean, you're part of a professional sports team and, you know, you're, you get to experience things that if you weren't in that role, there's 32 starters out of 7 billion people. So if you weren't one of those 32, you still get to experience a lot of it. A lot of it stinks though. I mean, um, I do as a player, I did everything our starting quarterback did Monday through Sunday till 12 o'clock or till 1230 on Sunday, just afternoon. And then our one to four was different. And then everything else was the same. I studied the same, probably more. I practiced the same. I prepared the same. I had to work the same. You do everything like that, except you don't get to go um, reap the benefits of that work. You don't get to go have those competitive moments. You don't get to go on Sunday and get the competitive release. And that's really difficult to do. Now think about it. Not once, twice but 16 times a year and then do it two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine years in a row. It's very hard to brainwash yourself into doing that consistently and believing that there's value in it or reward in it. And so that was a, you know, a not fun part Uh, to be honest with you, not waking up Monday and being sore is not fun. I would (laughs) rather, I would rather have woken up Monday sore than not sore. Um, cause you stand on the sidelines and again, I, I had been a competitive kid my whole life. And then all of a sudden you have no opportunity to be competitive, competitive really. So you find ways to be competitive, certainly during the week at practice time. But, um, yeah, the trade off of not being able to uh, be the guy is very difficult because it's so contrary to what so many of us experienced throughout our childhood and high school and college careers. Um, as, re- as awesome as it is, there's a lot of, I don't want to say downsides, but there's just a lot of um, muck there that you've got to be able to handle. And were there times as you're prepared or you feel that you're prepared that you realized, I'm not actually prepared. I hope I don't even go in this game. Or were you always in a position because of your competitive nature that you were dead set, I'm going to be ready no matter what? 
Oh yeah, there was never a moment like that for me. There, I, I was. There was never even a moment remotely close to that because, again, you going back to the theory of providing value or whatnot, or proving value. You know, one, a lot of coaches would would figure out if you were ready or not by asking you questions during the week or questions on Saturday night. And you don't want. I didn't want to be that guy not knowing what the answer was. And two, as I was going and helping out the other running backs or, or receivers or helping our starter or defensive backs. And you, you're preparing through, you're just preparing differently. And so, no, I was, ne- I never went into a game, not absolutely ready to take the first snap of that game. And, um, you know, you have to, you have to be willing to do that. It's not fun. It's not easy. Cause again, if you get to week nine, 10, 11, and you're putting all this time into preparing studying, and never using it, it would be very easy for you to go, uh, you know what? I'm, I'm not going to, I'm, there's no chance I'm going to play this week. But then that chance comes, you play like, 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 like dog doo doo and you're gone. <laughs> That's right. You're obviously involved in the offense, but as you're watching plays during the course of the game, do you have a lot of input with the offensive coordinator as far as what you're seeing and suggestions as far as play calling? That is totally a, a, a singled out situation. As I got older, I did. It depends on who the guy is as the quarterback. Like who's the, you're not going to take a ton of input from a young kid because he, he, you know, he's very clean behind the ears. It also depends on the offensive coordinator. Does, is he confident enough and, and secure enough to maybe say, okay, yeah, maybe we look into this or creative enough or uh, able to understand what's being said to him. So it's very, very, uh, contingent on who those guys are but as I got older yeah for sure I I would have impact and I wasn't scared to say stuff you know like I told coaches listen if you think it's a stupid idea it's a stupid idea but I'm still gonna fire off you know so that's very dependent on who the people are in the equation and I want to know also who comes up with these names for these offensive plays and give me an example of some crazy play calling that you've had to do yeah, I mean, they have, all these coaches have all these different methods of calling and whatnot. It depends on what type of system you're going to run and who your players are, who your quarterback is, what their information retention is, all that stuff. So some coaches, how, how did they learn? What, what offensive system were they in and how was it taught? Do they have the ability to get creative to maybe make things shorter? Do they need to get things longer because their players need it? It's very uh, dependent, again, on who their guys are. If you've got dumb receivers, you got to tell – if your Z receiver is not very bright, you need to tell them what to do. So Z, run a go, you know, so stuff like that. Um, Some wordy – I've had wordy, wordy, wordy play calls, and then I've had play calls that have, you know, fit under one umbrella. So – um yeah so what's an example of a wordy play call yeah i mean i've had some like okay let me re-rack my brain here so i've had some like double right close flash 42 eight bubble pop back kill 394 double fade arrow on the double count (laughs) oh my gosh yeah so a lot of variables um and you just you figure out ways to memorize it or communicate it but then i've also had that play or something similar to that play be, you know, faint. And it's just that simple. Yeah, I mean, it just depends on who who's calling the plays. And what, 
it, it is there the formation very specific to games and whatnot. There's a lot of different ways. I mean, Chip Kelly has gotten a lot of notoriety for kind of simplifying things into words or one word type play calls. I think that's been going on at the high school level for a while now. Um, to be honest with you, when we were running two minute offenses back in the day, that's, it's not all that different. So Peyton Manning did it a lot, you know, when he, when he was playing. So it's just really dependent on who the coaches are, the tempo that you want to play in, the players that you have, and their ability to retain information. So, And where did you enjoy your career the most? At what stop? Oof. Yeah, I was fortunate. I played, you know, my first four years in Detroit were very, very, very difficult. I can't sit there and tell you I enjoyed a ton of it other than some of those relationships that I made off the field that I mentioned. I went from there to Houston. I made lifelong friends in Houston. Matt Schaub and Kevin Walter and Chris Myers had the opportunity to play under Gary Kubiak, who had profound impact on me as a player and a person. Then I went to Indy. I absolutely loved playing in Indianapolis. The culture there, the people there were remarkable. I got to play with a good buddy of mine from Yukon and Donald Brown. Um, from there, I went to Tampa. I loved living in Tampa, obviously, Florida. Um, some unique, I, I didn't love my time there with the team. You know, we had some, some unique stuff happen to us as a team, but I loved living. My kids were lived. That's when our kids were very young. We lived very close to Clearwater beach. So that was obviously awesome. Um, but my, my second run in Detroit, much better experience team, uh, great friends and became very good friends with a guy that I think very highly of and care for a lot of Matthew Stafford part of a little bit of a turnaround there. Um, so I was fortunate to, to play in some pretty cool spots. And right now you're doing some work broadcasting with the Flag Football League, but why aren't you playing? Well, you know, I had gotten called earlier this year to be a part of it. Um, I, I'm not made for that. You know, those, those quarterbacks, you've got to be um, pretty athletic to be able to run around because of the unique rules of that league. And also – I was just done. I was when I, if I want to be competitive, I'll go on a golf course right now or whatnot, but um, I was just done. And honestly, I was ready to go to the next step. And that's for me, I want to be in television. So that wasn't going to, I was like this as a player. If it wasn't going to help me get in, you know, progress my television hopes, um, then I wasn't going to do it. So um, it just, it just wasn't going to be my cup of tea. And as we're wrapping up here, Dan, what about just looking back at your career so far and obviously a long time playing sports and being involved in sports? So how has it impacted your life? I tell people this all the time. And that's a great question because I have four kids and three of them are boys. And people always ask me, are you going to let your kids play football? My immediate unwavering response is absolutely. And I say it with confidence because I would have no idea who, what, or where I would be today without football. And I'm not talking about the, the financial aspect that I was I'm fortunate enough to be a part of, but just the absolute DNA wiring of, of all those aspects of myself. I have no idea, idea where I would be without football in those regards. So, um, and I then sprinkle it off into any sports. I think sports are the greatest thing that we have for our children nowadays, whether it's soccer or ping pong. I mean, 
it doesn't have to be the meat heady sport that people perceive. I did not growing up playing soccer. I hope that my kids, my kids play soccer right now and I hope they continue to, because I see how good it is for them. Um, I think sports teach our teach, teach things that you can't be taught. I believe that one of the greatest things you can do for yourself is to physically test yourself because it's the opportunity to prove yourself to yourself. There's not many things that are going to ask you to be physically tested. And when you're physically tested, you're then mentally tested and you have to answer questions in the deepest part of who you are in those moments and being able to answer those questions and prove to yourself that you can I think is such an underrated aspect and sports provides that for kids. Um, and I think that's just uh, an incredible thing. And I was so fortunate to be a part of it. It is amazing. The impact of sports and other things that can have an impact are words of wisdom. And I always like to ask the guests to share any words of wisdom, mottos, phrases, quotes, or just life advice that has meant a lot to you, Dan, that you would like to share. Oh, geez. Uh, so many, you know, I'm a big, I'm a big quote I grab onto, you know, some of the things that I have, you know, that are just part of my gym that I work out in or office that I do work in, you know, one is the poem of the guy in the glass, you know, and, and the, the concept of it is you, you can't fool the guy who's going to look back in the mirror at you. You know, you can fool your friends and you can fool a lot of people. But once you look in the mirror, you can't fake that person out. You know, that person staring back at you knows the truth. Um, I think the, the, the easy don't quit, the inner voice of never quitting um, is something. But I, one thing that was said to me in my college years that really revolutionized my life was said to me by Coach Edsel, who was my head coach at UConn and he's back there now. And this is when I was young and a little bit dumb and ignorant and whatnot. <laughs> he, um, he made the comment to me, how you do anything is how you do everything. And it was at a time when I thought, okay, I'm there to play football. So school didn't really matter and whatnot. And my grades were very, very, very poor. And he was trying to get me to understand you can't um, pick and choose what you were wanted, wanted to be good at or what you wanted to be committed to. And that it came down to, Hey, how you do anything, how you're going to do school, how you're going to do your workouts, how you're going to treat people, how you're going to handle preparing, how you're going to go about eating, um, how you do any of that stuff is how you're going to do everything in your life. And uh, it's a very simple thing to say, incredibly hard to do, but it's something that I've kind of held on to moving forward. Well said, sir. And what's the plans for the Backup Plan podcast? Are you going to continue that? Yeah, I would probably continue it. Um, I've got, I'm going to have a very full fall this coming year, and I don't want to be spread too thin So because I want to be really, really, really good at what I do. And so um, I'm, it's certainly right now on pause because of all those things that I'll be doing, I'm sure as, as we move into football season, it'd be, you know, something that I'm going to pick back up. But right now, as I'm weaving my way and making some decisions and finalizing some stuff, um, it's just, it's taken a little bit of a break. Well, I'm looking forward to 
having you share your insight this football season and beyond. And Dan, I can't thank you enough for spending time with me on my podcasting journey. So thank you so much. I appreciate you having me, bud. Life has a certain way of testing anyone's will as you're striving to succeed because there's so many challenges and the adversity that you face on a day-to-day basis. And that's even more magnified in sports where you're tested both physically and mentally through that competition. But competition doesn't always mean a direct one-on-one or team-versus-team concept. And Dan experienced that firsthand. Because building a program from the ground up, like Dan and his teammates did at UConn, is the ultimate competition and test of your will. Now that finishes episode 74, and as always, you can subscribe through Apple Podcasts or any podcasting platform, and also now you can listen on Spotify. So remember, focus forward so we don't live in the past. All the best, everyone. You've been listening to Rich Take on Sports, the sports podcast with life. Visit richtakeonsports.com to subscribe and catch up on any episodes you might have missed. You can also follow us on Twitter at Rich Take Sports. Thanks for listening.